I think the biggest aha moment comes when I talk to people, when I talk to industry, uh, and you're like, oh no, what am I doing in academia? I, I, there's so much of things to do in the world. And then I say, no, the students are the future of our industry as well. So it's good that we can bridge this gap between the industry and the students. So kind of working my way through um, different news articles and understanding what is what I'm researching, what's happening in the world about it, and then bringing that back into bite-sized pieces and seeing how it can be incorporated. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague, Sonali Didi from the Department of Design and Merchandising. Sonali, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. It's wonderful to be here. We're looking forward to just having some fun, uh, getting to know you a little bit better, and and just uh, chatting our our conversation for the next half an hour or so. Absolutely. So, Sonali, I want to talk about things that that maybe don't often get front and center when we talk about academic conversations, right? So when I ask you to tell us about yourself, I'm interested in in family and personal interest of yours, maybe even in special memories that you might be willing to share. Sure, absolutely. I'm Sonali Didi, and um, I come from India, um, and I am the youngest of the three siblings, which many people say that they can relate to. (laughs) Um, I guess um, my interests are more in cooking. I love cooking. I love spicy food. Uh And I think I love more than cooking, I love sharing it with friends and family. So uh, that gives me more happiness than just the cooking. So that's what I get excited about anytime, about potlucks, about office gatherings. That is something really um, very nice for me to feed. Do you have favorites or, or something you're famous for in your, your repertoire? Yes, I'm very famous for biryani. Okay. Um, it's a rice dish. Uh-huh. Um, it's, um, it's kind of, it has lots of spices and it's, it's made with meat or veggies. And then it is layered with the meat, the curry, and then the rice. And then it's steamed for about an hour or so. Ah. Um, and yes, it's very flavorful. It can be spicy for some, uh, but that is what I'm known for. But I love food. I love trying new cuisines. I love um, the one thing which many people don't know about me, I will say, is I don't like sweets. Aha, uh-huh. okay. okay. So, so all spice, no sweet. All spice, no <laughs> sweet. So I can't take sweets in any form. So that that's the downside of it is I don't like fruits. So, so. that's okay. That's yeah. okay. We'll forgive you for that. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, th- those are some of those things which um, define me as a person. I love spending time with family. And I think last year we closed our house. And uh, one of the things which I developed as a hobby is gardening, raising veggies. Mm. Um, and that's been a very peaceful uh, way to spend time. And again, I'm also part of the CSU Grow and Give. So the produce from my garden goes to CSU Grow and Give and the Latimer County Food Bank. So really nice, pe- feeling nice about uh, such things. 
That's fantastic. It's really cool. I may have to request a dish from you because my girlfriend absolutely loves Indian food. Like, absolutely. That's, I, that's her thing. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On it. Yeah. Sure. Great. Right. Thank fantastic. you. <laughs> Are you able to get back to visit your extended family with any regularity? I know COVID has clearly made that far more difficult than it would have been in the past. I think we have been, there was a long gap. Um, I left India in 2008 uh, to do my master's in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for a very brief 15 day time, I was in India when we were moving from Australia to the US. And I think there was a big gap of eight years that I could not visit primarily because it was like the visa issues, the immigration, there are lots of processes. So it, I missed India to as a place to go and spend some time. But I was fortunate enough that my parents could come and visit us a couple of times. So that was good. Uh, But when we went in 2017, I think that was the biggest shock of life because India had changed so much Mm. uh, that it was beyond recognition of where I had left. Um, So I think it was just more cosmopolitan more consumerist society, I would say. We, uh-huh. we did not grow in such a place, so it was difficult to see the changes yeah. which was happening. Um, so, yeah, and after that, we went twice. Um, so it was good going back and I'll spending bet. some time with family and friends. What are some of the things you miss the most about uh, your childhood memories of growing up in India? I think I miss the most is um, everything is available at the tip of your fingers. I mean, you go, you get something, and uh, even if you're making something, you get everything right by the corner of the street. And here you have to plan each and everything. Like, let's say if it was (laughs) like a wedding dress, I mean, you could get all of that done in like two weeks because you would have access to tailors, you would have access to fabric shops, trims, everything. And here it's like a one-year plan to make a wedding dress. So uh, I think the accessibility and I I would say the public transport. Um, I miss that a lot. Between yeah. even in Australia, it was I was in Melbourne before, um, so it was so well connected with public transport, and I think that's the most thing I miss in the U.S. is the public transport. Yeah, and where we do it at all, it tends to be coastal, right? As you yeah. move away yes. from the coast, you, yeah. you see much less of that. That's interesting. And another interesting fact I will say is I learned driving in 2015. I hadn't touched <laughs> a vehicle or a bike <laughs> or anything, oh, no so kidding. I learned. I got my driver's license in Fort Collins in 2015, so I still consider myself a new driver. I haven't been on the freeway absolutely, and I don't intend to go on I-25 whatsoever. I do not blame you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I don't think anybody should. Yes, and that's because we were so spoiled with the public transport, the different modes of transport, so you would always get from point A to point B. But Coming to the U.S., it was difficult, and you had to learn. So I learned in 2015, took drivers at classes, and got my license. Congratulations. Yes. We got our license in the same year. So shout out to that grad class. That's great. I have a cousin who's an attorney in New York City who's never had a driver's license. And, you know, I saw him at a family reunion a few years ago, and he said, what do I need a car for? Yeah, It's (laughs) It's just a hassle, right? You know, so... You know, but it, when you get out of those metro settings, it becomes yeah. much different, that's for sure. Yeah. So so tell me about your, your educational journey. And, and you can go as far back on this as you want, but, but the natural question is, how did you find yourself in the academy? 
but some of those influences may be, you know, pretty far back, right? So I'm curious about your educational pathway. Yes, that, that's something really, um, I will say, is very dear to me. I mean, coming from India, um, in India, I will say this, uh, and it could be my personal opinion, um, that we were used to having only two streams for your career paths. Either you are a doctor or an engineer. So it was a societal norm that you either go into any of these fields, that's it. I mean, there's no other way that you can think of your life. I was fortunate enough that uh, my parents said you could choose what you wanted to. And being, um, so I always loved arts. I loved drawing, I loved painting. Um, and I decided to go into fashion designing. Um, that's how I got into this line of work, I would say. And I started my undergraduate in 1998, finished in 2001. Um, and it was just a beautiful learning journey. It was so hands-on, uh, so action-oriented, working with weavers. I worked a lot with weavers even during my undergraduate, um, seeing them in the spaces which they were and feeling um, uh, that we were very fortunate to have access to many things, which they didn't. Uh, but also a feeling of a responsibility towards um, them and their work. Um, and that got me more into doing freelance designing. Um, I was doing freelance designing, doing right from designing to production to marketing, everything in the supply chain. And I think it was two years after I graduated, two or three years after I graduated, one of my professors at the place where I got uh, graduated, NIFT, um, National Institute of Fashion Technology, he said, Sonali, you were very good as a student and you, I would do a lot of peer teaching. That was something which I would learn as exams. Um, I would do a lot of peer teaching. And he said, maybe you should just try teaching for, you know, because I saw you um, working with your friends and that's how I got introduced to teaching. So to this day, I uh, do um, give all the credit to my professor. His name is Sanjay Srivastava for introducing me to academia. And after that, I think I just love teaching. I just love being among students. Um, and I just, so that was again, like more part-time teaching, part-time freelancing. And after that, I worked with the state government from the place where I came to introduce a whole new curriculum in fashion designing to be rolled out in the kind of community college how we have here, we call it Polytechnic in India. So we rolled out the program and it was about six, seven years, I think, after I graduated. And at certain point I felt I was a frog in the well. I was not doing anything new. Uh, it was the same thing which I learned I'm teaching and not so much about exploring what it was. And that's what took me to Australia to do my uh, master's. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, it was completely different uh, because in India, I think we learn more theoretical. We don't understand the practical applications. I'm pretty sure it may have changed now, but this is what my perception is. We, we are very good with theory and it's when you go to work, you uh, learn on the go. But when I moved to the US, it was more of the reverse way. You understand the practical applications, you learn from how do you apply knowledge? And I think that really helped me learn better. And I loved learning. Um, and after my master's, I think it was my husband's dream because he said, oh, you love learning and you should continue your PhD. 
So if well, it's, I, I, yeah. I did not even think in the world that I will do my PhD, but he was the driving force behind my decision. Um, and we started looking and I think that's when we said, okay, US is the next place to go. And that brought me to Iowa State University to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. And after my doing my PhD, my area is more into sustainability and CSU was just the right choice to be in. Uh, so that that's that's what brought me here. So when I hear this, I hear big influences of of a professor you named early on who mm-hmm. who began that process. But but then, and I'm really delighted to hear this, your spouse, yeah. who was a major player in this process, and, yes, and that's yes. really neat. Yeah. Can you think of others along the way that were touchstone moments, or, or would they oh, be the principal? My principi- parents have been the other big support. My oh, parents great. and my siblings all the way through. My brother was in Louisiana before. Um, he was at Louisiana State. He was doing his master's. So that was also one of the uh, reasons that we thought, okay, U.S. was a better place to do my Ph.D. So I would say family has been a huge um, support mechanism all through these years um, and going forward as well. And friends and family, I would say, uh, are the biggest support. Much to be thankful for. Yes. Good for you. Very thankful. So we managed to recruit you to CSU. Yes. And you're part of this wonderful college we call Health and Human Sciences. So tell us a little bit about what excites you the most about your your research program and your your role as a professor here in the college. I think what excites me the most, um, I will will start with something very general and then I'll go more specific, I guess. Um, The what excites me most is... um, land-grant mission of CSU. I applied for very few col- very few universities and all of them were land-grant. And I still remember the hallways of Morrill Hall because Iowa State, I, I'm a grad of Iowa State and it was just so nice to read the history of Morrill Act and what it meant. Um, so I had decided going forward, I would be at a land-grant uh, university. And that's what brought me to CSU. Uh, and that's very near to me. Um, and I always feel that we, as academics or researchers, we are here to impact the society with whatever knowledge we gain. And in that process, also learn a lot from others. I think that's the best part of my job, is I get to learn every day in different forms and uh, ways, uh, which helps enrich my own knowledge and the way I see the society. Um, that's what you know excites me about my job um, and CSU. Um, and then the other big part of um, why I love to be here is the focus of sustainability um, all throughout the different functions of what we do as a university and the place. I still remember I came for interview here. I got down at DIA and I'm having all these screens showing um, you know the melting glaciers and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, something to do, you know, this is something which they're doing publicly. So it was really nice to see that being acknowledged that we need to make changes in different ways to help us stay on earth for a very long time. So uh, that was like the selling point. I was like, this is the place I want to be. So I think sustainability was the biggest part of my other decision to be here at CSU. That's great. And that's our awesome. outreach at DIA was, was part of baiting the hook, so to yes. speak. Yes. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So I want you to exercise your imagination a little bit. Let, let's flash forward five years. I want you to reflect a little bit on, on your aspirations for what kind of impact your own scholarship is having. 
So um, I guess it, it's been a really um, memorable and a great journey here at CSU for the past seven years. Time flies, uh, doesn't time, it? Time does fly. Time <laughs> does fly. Um, and fast forward five years, um, right now um, I am a president's fellow with the Office of Engagement and Extension. Um, and I see lots of opportunities in the way we can connect campus to Colorado communities, again, bringing back the land-grant mission. So I'm hoping um, in the next five years we are better with our engagement efforts, um, not just us, even me, um, with my own scholarship, um, connecting to Colorado communities and their needs. Um, my area, if you may, it's, it's a beginning right now and what I call it as a fiber shed. Uh, it, was, uh, it is a philosophy which was pioneered by um, designer in California and it is just how, how quickly can you make a product within 100 miles. That's how she started with that philosophy and California Fiber Shed is now one of the most successful ones and I'm like why can't we do that in Colorado? Wow. Why can't we make a product which is completely sourced and made and for people in Colorado? Um, so um, I'm hoping that with my fellowship and with my with working with extension agents, how can we create this uh, supply chain which is based on circular economy? So that's cool. I'm hoping that that's the way I see myself five years from now. Well, that certainly wow. helps us understand your affinity for the land grant mission, right? Yes. Yes. We live in this big and incredibly beautiful, in my opinion, state, but also incredibly diverse, yeah. right? And that diversity ranges from the topography to the mm -hmm. climate mm -hmm. yes. to the people and communities, yes, right? Definitely. And so contributing to that stewardship mission mm -hmm. really has appeal. Good for you. I'm hoping it works out. Yes. I'll have a front row seat as I cheer you on and watch your journey. Absolutely. Yes. So tell us about a day in the life of Sonali and her team. What, what, what does it look like to, to be a scholar in your shoes? I would say, I think the way I work is block off times for different projects. So right now I'm working on um, two grants and other project with the uh, related to engagement and extension. So kind of blocking off time and just working my way through of, I made a, make a list of what needs to be done, get it done, work with my graduate assistant on different projects and kind of guide her through. Um, that that's so kind of making deadlines, working my way through. Um, and I think the biggest aha moment comes when I talk to people, when I talk to industry. Uh, and you're like, oh no, what am I doing in academia? I, I, there's so much of things to do in the world. And then I say, no, the students are the future of our um, industry as well. So it's good that we can bridge this gap between the industry and the students. So kind of working my way through um, different news articles and understanding what is what I'm researching, what's happening in the world about it, and then bringing that back into um, bite-sized pieces and seeing how it can be incorporated. That's neat. So when, when you think about yourself as a teacher and mentor, what are, what are some of the touchstones for you in terms of what you try to share as a message to students, right, who might aspire to do what you're doing and to be where you're at at a land-grant university, right? Sure. I think the past year has uh, taught me in um, telling students to give themselves grace um, yeah. and be 
it's okay and there's there'll be time for everything so if, if they're not the best learners at this point that's okay it's their own feeling of how they best learn mm-hmm. um, and encouraging them in that space um, and giving them different options of learning so whenever I teach I have these different modes one is lectures um, and as I said um, what are the current events going on and how that uh, weighs in what they here in lecture is another big thing of how I teach my courses um, and I, I tell students that as they should be looking out, out, out of their textbooks. It, it, it can't be a textbook knowledge. The more they go out, the more they uh, see what industry is doing because that's the place they're going to be at some place. Um, so more practical knowledge is what I stress upon for them to uh, gain uh, from different channels. And the students now have um, access to different social media channels. News comes in different ways and forms and they can choose to engage in whichever uh, way they feel comfortable to learn. Um, So kind of stressing that they have to develop their own style of learning and Mm -hmm. what works best for them. And I'm here to help them whenever they want. Oh, that's great, Evelyn. That's great. So I think all of us, to varying degrees, try to make ourselves approachable to students, right? There's this perceptual barrier that professors are unapproachable. And, of course, we occasionally have moments where we would like to be approached. We're sitting in office hours and nobody comes to talk to us or something along those lines, right? But th- do you take deliberate steps to, to sort of invite students into, you know, come see me, come talk to me, come let us pursue some questions together? I think um, one of the most things is people, I guess, just know that I'm passionate about sustainability and I get to, um, I have students who are also passionate about sustainability just come and walk uh, into my office and we start off working on a project or I engage them with something which I do. And with the others, I think what has helped me know my students better, um, and this is my personal goal, is to know all their names in the first two weeks. And for some reason, I know their last names better than their first. Um, (laughs) And I still haven't figured out what, why that is. Uh, but it helps me connect with the students on a personal level. Um, and I have students ranging from 40 to 70 students in a class. Uh, so it helps me connect with them when they know that, oh, she knows my name. Um, and then slowly as the semester progresses, I kind of talk to them, just asking about them, about how did your weekend go, what's going on in the other classes. Because coming from a different culture, I think it, it took a big learning curve for me to understand that the students have social life as well, mm-hmm. because we always grew in a place where studies and academics were the only thing which you did, mm. um, no sports or extracurriculars. So it was a big learning curve uh, to say, it's okay, they have their own life, they have social life, they have other things to do, and studying is not just the one thing which they do. So trying to understand how their life is and, and then kind of balancing out or uh, suggesting them other ways to, you know, help them study better or learn better. That's great. You know, you have spoken really elegantly about the appeal of the land-grant mission, right? And so you've anticipated one of our central questions. I want you to talk a little bit about the, the, the things that appeal to you, what, what you enjoy the most about being a member of this college community, the College of Health and Human Sciences. I think the biggest thing for me is impact um, and how, how do we impact um, 
people's lives, people around you, um, with the research which you do, with the knowledge which you gain, how can you be a facilitator of a solution um, and not kind of direct that this is the solution. So uh, I think that's that's what drives um, CHHS and CSU, in my opinion. Um, we work with human, we work with people. And I think that's it's, it's really important to understand where do they come from, what kind of values and norms do they hold, and how can you understand them better? And then uh, work through that um, to provide some support to what they need. Um, so I think that's what helps my research forward in this area. There, there is this boundless variety of, of people and history and perspectives, right? And I think that certainly for me is part of what the academy or writ large has always been interesting. But our college does a nice job of focusing on people and places. Mm-hmm. I think it's really a lot of fun. So we're, we're glad to have you here. I yes. think we count yeah. ourselves fortunate. Yes. Absolutely. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? I've been saying this a lot, but I guess um, if it's been a difficult one and a half year for everyone. So maybe um, just taking a deep breath when you feel overwhelmed and giving yourself grace um, and go doing the best work you do um, with all the support mechanisms we have here at CSU. Well said. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. I am curious in relation to to sustainability, you know, of course, reading a bit more about you and reading the the source articles that that we produced about you. What was the main thing that got you interested in sustainable fashion? Yes. So um, it's an interesting journey. So as I as I said, I used to work with weavers before Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would say I would think all majority of the previous generation, as I I think of, and our generation in India coming from a developing country, we always, I'll start my journey of sustainability somewhere there. We knew our milkmen, we knew our uh, vegetable vendors, uh, we knew where our food came from. So we knew everything, like where where our our clothes getting um, done, it was tailored, so it would last longer. So we grew up with these things, we had limited number of things to worry about in terms of material things. Um, and as I moved to, um, I will say mostly US, not Australia, but US, I will say the amount of overconsumption in every aspect which I saw, um, be it a paper towel to the amount of shoes people have. I mean, I had a friend who had like 30 pairs of shoes and a completely rationalized reasons of why she would need each of those. There's 30 days in a month, right? Yeah, I mean. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so shy. for me, it was very novel and also thinking about where does this all end up? Mm. Uh, are we asking those questions? And I think we were at that curve in the US where people were, it, it was globalization, easy sourcing, um, things are very cheap. compared to 20 years from down. So people like to have more um, and they're still not happy, unfortunately. Um, So so there's a lot of this um, social psychological piece with that. Um, And I was like, why are people buying so much? Like what, for me, culture and from where I I come from informed my decision-making the way I grew up. Um, And I was just curious about how do people make those deci- decisions to buy more or buy from a certain retailer? Do they look at the values of that retailer or a brand? 
um, that's what was my dissertation about. What are those inner um, things which make humans decide about what to do and what not to do? Don't they think about, oh, this is not good for the earth, but we are still buying? Um, so those, those were things which kind of started my uh, curiosity. And as I moved into this space more, um, um, it was, there were very shocking numbers from uh, U.S. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency, which talk about uh, 11 million tons of clothing ending up in U.S. landfills in just one year. Mm. And this was a 2019 figure. So that's increasing by the year and the day. And we did not have a solution for it. Um, and I would say being such a developed economy with the best brains and we couldn't still we cannot still tackle this problem of overconsumption and it is it is a circle it is like producers saying consumers need more consumers saying producers are giving us a lot of variety at cheap prices so why not take it yeah. so it had to be tackled from both ends of spectrum and that's why i say my research is in the spectrum of sustainable consumption and production because we'll have to tackle, and the consumer itself. I mean, awareness is huge. Awareness and education. And whenever I have talked on campus and across, I've had people come back and say, Sonali, I went to the store and I stopped for a moment and I thought, okay, I don't need it. I, and I passed through. And that for me is the impact which I'm looking at. Um, if somebody is giving a moment to think, do I really need it versus do I really want it? Um, and make a decision, I think, that's where I fit in. That's where my research matters. So Awesome. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah. And that's our show. As always, thank you for listening to Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to check out our other episodes. If you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, visit our website, chhs.colostate.edu.